Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Professor Lieven Annemans as a guest. He is a senior full professor of health economics at the faculties of medicine of the Vrije Universiteit Brussel and at Ghent University. He conducts research related to health promotion, financial incentives in healthcare, and the factors that can improve overall well-being. He is past president of the ESPOR, International Society of Pharma Economics and Outcomes Research, was chairman of the Flemish Health Council and is currently chairman of the Flemish Committee for Societal Revival. He's author and or co-author of more than 300 papers in peer-reviewed journals and published four books on health economics, among which Health Economics for Non-Economists. Recently, he published the book Geluk vinden zonder het te zoeken, which means finding happiness without pursuit. At the moment, only available in Dutch, but I'm sure it's going to be there in English in the future. I also call him the Steven Seagal of uh, happiness because of his ponytail. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Let me start a bit with the question. Are you also a bit of an Aristotelian when it comes to happiness or a Schopenhauer addict who says like happiness is determined by your lack of pain instead of your finding of pleasure? Well, you, you mentioned two, but there are so many different visions. What's important is that in Aristotle was more looking at happiness in, in terms of eudaimonia, namely, can you really say that you are leading a good life? So, And a good life, not in, in, in terms of burgundic life, like um, I'm eating a lot and I'm playing a lot, etc. But a good life is, are you doing good things in your life? Can you really say that you, you are doing something useful, that you give a meaning to your life? I think that is... That is the way that, that several people see it. There is also another vision, namely, if you can avoid suffering, then you are happy because suffering is making people unhappy. And so as much as you can, trying to avoid suffering will help to make you happy. There are different views also. There is also the view on happiness more in, in terms of enjoying things, more in terms of, of pleasure. But there is often then a misunderstanding because, and that's also something I want to express in my book, people who, who confuse pleasure with, with happiness, they are then doing all kinds of things to seek pleasure, but they are not really happy. So This is what I'm super interested in because indeed it can be uh, pleasure, which sometimes can be more physiological, but other people define it more as satisfaction or fulfillment. And they can even sometimes be fulfilled with something negative that happened, but they learned from it and they find fulfillment in it. What is your stance towards what happiness entails? Well, I think it's very important that in, in most languages, the word uh, happiness and being happy is used in, in two in two ways, two meanings. First, like happy feelings. Oh, oh, I feel happy when I walk with my wife on the beach. I feel happy at that moment. I feel happy when I see my grandchildren playing. If they are playing nicely and don't uh, hit each other, then that gives me happy feelings. But happiness in the sense of, can you really say that you're a happy person, that you have a, a good life? That's the, other, that's the other meaning. And my interest in my research is more in the second, but... They are related, and they are related in two ways. First, people who are not really happy in their life, they try to seek happiness via trying to get happy feelings. So 
you you're not happy in your life for different reasons we can come back to that why some people are not happy and others are but some try then to compensate this this unhappiness with trying to look for pleasure to 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 look for moments of 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 joy and the other relationship is that those who are happy they have on average also more moments of joy but then it's more consequential in the first case it's more to compensate the lack of happiness and in the second case those who are happy they have a lot of episodes of of joy but more as a consequence of being happy when you search for happiness that you can actually not find happiness because happiness is something just as you know you're not aware of your good health unless you become sick that in the search for happiness that that can also cause unhappiness mm-hmm. yeah that's correct and that's why i i call my book the, the title is if you translate it into english it's like finding happiness without pursuit because i there there is an issue with the the pursuit of happiness it's like you have to aim for happiness that's that's your goal in your life you should be obsessed by trying to be happy without caring about others that's the wrong way the right way is that uh, happiness is something that you achieve together it's not a, a me thing it's a we thing so to say to to be happy we need each other to be happy i read i don't know which book it was but they said the uh, constitution of america or that was interpreted in the wrong way it was not the pursuit of happiness it was the happiness of pursuit <laughs> I, i didn't read it is there something with the dopamine that is in that that's released in anticipation of things right in the pursuit of things that actually that is our biggest you know dopamine producing activity exactly exactly but that's exactly the the misunderstanding that many people think of happiness in terms of dopamine we we release some neurotransmitters and because of given events and that gives us a happy feeling so that's happiness whereas real happiness is is means do you have a happy life and we measure that with the famous ladder of cantrill so where you really tell people uh, imagine a ladder with with steps from 0 on the bottom until 10 and 10 is the best possible life that you can imagine and 0 is the worst possible life that you can imagine where on this ladder is your life today so that's really asking about yeah do you have a good life do you are you happy with your life technically it's it's called cognitive uh, subjective well-being so it's subjective because people decide themselves what to what to answer on that on that scale but it's cognitive because it it requires some kind of reflection you have to think about that questions okay where where is my life nowadays on that ladder so it's just not a, a spontaneous answer it needs some reflection and that's really where my research is about what would you say about if you want to be happy lower your expectations yeah <laughs> i know of some happiness researchers who say it's it's very simple the formula it's the difference between what you have and what you what your expectations are so if you if you don't have a lot well then lower your expectations you'll still be happy i there is some truth in that of course because there are many people who become unhappy who are suffering because they're constantly comparing themselves with others and they always want more they have materialistic ambitions uh, they want to be rich and famous etc and then they don't succeed in that and then they are unhappy so there is some truth in that but it's not sufficient because if if imagine a mother with two children and she lives alone and she have a poor income uh, i don't think it's a good recommendation then to tell that that lady who is not happy you should adapt your expectations and then you'll be happy so there is there is more it's one element in the in the magic formula i would say but it's it's not there is more 
One of the books that really influenced me in the beginning of my self-development journey was the book The How of Happiness by Sonia Liubomirsky. So happy I can pronounce the name. And she said, which for me was hopeful, she read that there's also a difference in the genetic predisposition of that happiness level, which she said, true or not true, you can chime in on that, was like 40%. And then the external circumstances, I think, were like 20% or 10%. But then your mindset, your approach is like the biggest part. But that, that also gave me a little bit of a realistic interpretation of like happiness that there can be like a difference into base level of like happiness what people have do you have any research about it or well we we did our own research we looked a lot at uh research of others also from sonia i say sonia that's easier yeah. <laughs> and um and i cited also in my book exactly the 40 percent. so the current consensus is that about 40 percent is in your genes. Of course, even that's quite difficult because what happens in your first year of life is also yeah. very important. So you, you are born with, with genetic characteristics, but then you are born in that family of which you you received your genetic characteristics and then you're raised by, by them. So that difference is, is not so clean, of course. But then indeed, the other 60% is manageable. We can do something with the other 60%. And Indeed, external factors play a role. The society in which you live, for instance, and also things that happens, it happen in your life, so life events. And then your, you and yourself and how you are interacting with other people and how you are uh, taking care of your own mind is indeed very important. If we look at the factors that we found and, and we rank them from the one with the most impact on our level of happiness, the one appearing on, on the first place was peace of mind. So those who manage to have lots of peace of mind, who, who train their brain in order to and, and make sure that they take sufficient and give sufficient rest to their mind, that, that seemed in, in our research to be even the, the, the most driving factor. Something like eutymia? I don't know, there's a Greek word for it, I think, sometimes. Yeah, yeah and, but, but the problem is that some people consider that as happiness, but it's not... Happiness is the ultimate thing, eh? so a happy life. But then the next question is, what are the factors that can drive a happy life? And peace of mind is one of them, because peace of mind, you can, th that is actionable. Is that the right word? So you can, you can work on that, you can train that. Whereas you cannot train somebody to be happy. Happiness is then the consequence of pulling the right ropes, and then as a consequence, as a kind of an indirect positive effect, you will become more happy. That's the would, idea. Would a peace of mind be a mind of peace? Yes. Yes. Oh, I should write that quote down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can use it in my lectures. But but it's true because if you, well, there are the, the, the techniques are well known. You can do meditation. You can do mindfulness. There is also the the idea very important of of trying to avoid the the number of uh, inputs. So. What I mean with that third thing uh, is if you have a smartphone, make sure that it's at least an hour per day and even more on silence so that you don't have always the inputs from, from everywhere. Try to avoid social media or, or spending too much screen time. Try to walk in the nature, work in the garden, play music, listen to music. These are all techniques that help you to develop peace of mind. And according to the studies on meditation, for instance, it's not only that by doing that kind of training, you have better emotional regulation. You can control your emotions better. 
but you have also better emotional resonance with other people. You understand other people better. You have more empathy with them. And then you also have a more peaceful life together with with others. Peace of mind is mind to, is developing a mind of peace. Yes. This is this is something I learned from the book, which is I think one of the most underrated, but it had a very big impact on me, the, the work of Rollo May, who was uh, also an author about uh, anxiety. And he talked about the Panopticon is a system by Jeremy Bentham where you're constantly being watched. It's uh, The prisons are based on it. And this world, it seems like our umbilical cord is like connected to so many eyes who watch our behavior, approve what we do, that to have that peace of mind, peace of self, that independent self, that rest in ourselves in the eye of the storm, that create like permanent anxiety, permanently being watched. So it's it's difficult to disconnect now when we feel so much connected online, but maybe not connected on the inside. Yeah, but you are conscious about that. Many people are not conscious about that. Many people are still completely within the, the fear of missing out, wanting to be there, whatever happens. And whether you're watched or not, they don't care. They they're just, yeah, live their life, but they're not really living uh, uh, their life. I sometimes uh, compare them with with a ball in how is how is it called a pinball machine? Pinball machine, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And the ball goes from here to there, and. And and they're, they're not living consciously. But what you're saying, because you're living consciously, clearly, I, I can already understand it from the questions that you asked, <laughs> then it's it's really to to even make the, the joy of missing out, even make it a part of, of, of your daily life. So now and then just the joy of missing out. So no connection just on yourself to give your mind the, the necessary rest that it, uh, that it needs. It's kind of a training for your mind. You know what I do? And every listener should buy this. You should buy the kitchen safe. And you know what the kitchen safe is? That's a safe with a time lock and you can put stuff in it and you put on the dial how many hours it's locked and you can't access it. That's how you lock yourself on a virtuous path. Like, because my willpower is not so strong as a temptation of the device. So I put it in the kitchen safe. I, I, I put like 12 hours and I just can't access my phone because it's in that... <laughs> time lock of that safe it seems yeah. ridiculous but th then i'm like locked into making better decisions for myself because i can say i mean i think willpower is more won't power mm -hmm. no no yeah. no and it drain, yeah. even saying no drains you so i can say yeah. nine out of ten times i can say no but then the ten times i give in i have some shame etc and then i'm wasting time spending time wondering what's out there and it feels like such a pity sometimes because i gotta admit sometimes i look forward so much to traveling to a new country and then I spent one third of the time on my phone wondering what's going on there and I'm there in a new country that I can experience I can live so that's a bit like the struggle between using the great things about technology and choices and options and then purposely locking ourselves out of it and find that joy of missing out yeah exactly but that's important uh, um I'm doing because I'm also a health economics health economist, so I do a lot of research on new health technologies as well. And also there we see, but we see it also in general. Many people uh, seem to not understand that the digital technologies are there to help us to lead a better life, and sometimes they really help us to to lead a better life. But many people let let their life be be led by the digital, so they are becoming obsessed by the digital and. And, and they forget to live. We, we have to clearly give technology the place where it belongs, namely to help us living a better life. This is my quote that I have. We don't need more technology to keep humanity in check. We need more humanity to keep technology in check. Yeah, 
Yeah, indeed. indeed. Even Henri David Thoreau already talked about it. He said, men have become tools of their tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my sons is a philosopher, so he studied philosophy and his thesis was about men and technology and how that evolves. And now they they offer how to con consultancy regarding digital well-being. So mm -hmm. how to how to live with the digital and avoid that that we let our lives be led by the digital. Yeah. That's and, very important. And besides that, something that I find very interesting on the impact on our happiness. And I think ever since the Enlightenment, we had the idea that when we have more choices, we will be happy. And it's interesting to look at the research from Barry Schwartz, The Paradox of Choice, that, yeah, when you have like three choices, it's fine. Cool. We have three choices. But now we have so much choices, not only of what we can buy, of who we can be, maybe in virtual reality of all the lives we could be living. It, it's be seen as endless possibilities, but that is just health. That is constant anxiety and having to decide, like, is this the experience I want to have? Is this the experience I want to have? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's related to the hedonic treadmill in the sense that there is, on top of the lots of choice that we have, there is also the, the commercials, the publicity. Take this, uh, buy this, you will be happy. Sometimes even I saw publicity for a car, impress others. So I, if I, I, I buy this car, I will impress others. And and people then are so much then into, oh, I want it, I want it. And then they buy it. And then they feel maybe, again, we are talking about dopamine, etc. They feel maybe for a very short moment, oh, I, I bought something fantastic. And then afterwards, they're suffering because, again, there is the embarrassment of the choice. And again, there is publicity. And, and you have to buy this in order to be happy. You have to travel to that country. If you never have seen that country, oh, then you're missing something in your life. So again, the fear of missing out is also coming back there. And before you know, you're in the treadmill, always trying to, to buy new things of which you believe that will make you happy. And that's this is something that Edward Bernays started, the grandfather propaganda, the nephew of Freud. And then it became increasingly tied with our identity of like, you are what you buy and what you consume. And there's this identity with like, customize your iPhone and make everything, you know, part of your unique identity. In the future, maybe your wallpaper or with AI, you can customize everything, you know, but by customizing things like an app, sometimes you turn yourself into an app that constantly has to be updated. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that happens is that you make your life more empty by doing these kind of things. But yeah, it, it requires consciousness. It requires understanding that it, it can be done differently to become happy. So that, that's the first thing that you, you need to understand. Okay, this is not the right way. There is another way where uh, kind of a, a path that you can follow that, that helps you to become happy. Do you think at a certain point we're able to say like, okay, we don't always have to move forward to enhance the species. We have to go backwards and then integrate things. Because with all these increasing options, transhumanism, etc., yeah, I see a lot of possibilities. But we never in humanity said, like, you know, let, we did a bit in the Renaissance, let's rescue ideas. But we never said, like, mm, let's go back, you know, like, I kind of liked it, you know, yeah. before when we had less. And I'm going to pick and what I want. And you can advance and have more choices. But then people say, like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But I was hesitating when you were asking the question, mm -hmm. because what do we mean by moving forward? Mm -hmm. Moving forward in the... In the way that most people interpret it, like, oh, yes, we have our economy, our economies have to grow and our technology has to help us to live uh, longer lives and, and even transhumanism. We can even uh, upgrade ourselves, etc. Et That's one interpre interpretation of, of moving forward. Another interpretation of moving forward is um, 
to become yeah better human beings that is that would that would be a welcome uh, moving that's forward. a fantastic point that you make indeed because i would ask people like hey are you moving forward in life like what would they have as a default answer or what would be the reference points it's like yeah making more money about the house i did this thing that's the standard answers right yeah. but i yeah. think you know the research and i saw, saw some research myself of the happiness in relationships of the overall life satisfaction of the average amount of friends people have it's all declining Last yep. one, you're 30. I mean, according to what I read, right? You probably know it better than me. So despite increasing options, longer lifespan, it seems that the fundamental things with satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning is actually, and relationships, social life is going down and declining. Yeah, yeah, indeed. In most countries, what you see is that, of course, welfare over the last decades has, has increased. So there are many more possibilities. But that score on that ladder that we were talking about that's slowly going down, mm. staying flat in some countries and slowly going down in, in, in other countries. One of the reasons is exactly that we, we have been so busy with, with these materialistic issues that we forget what really, what's really important in, in life. There is an also more technical explanation. Mm -hmm. That is that if economies grow, then the differences become bigger. If, if let's say, so many years ago, one had an income of two thousand dollars and the other per month, and the other had one thousand per month. And now we are on average richer. So one has four thousand and the other has two thousand. The absolute difference between both has increased, and so there are now more possibilities. But there is then more frustration in the person who has less money than the other one. The the gap has becoming bigger. And so the one with a higher income can do more things. And then again, it's it's what we are also already we're talking about. It's them comparing ourselves with others, having the same expectations or even more. And then that makes people unhappy. So the the large economic differences, large income differences also have a negative impact on the average happiness level in, in a country. So when we see now that $3 trillion has been moved from the middle class to the upper class to most centralized global institutions with, I don't know, 23 people owning half of the wealth, you know, globally, yeah. not only in the country, would that mean, if I would interpret it like correlation is not causation, etc., that the overall satisfaction would again uh, go down because there's even more of a gap between the 1% and then middle class, lower class? Yeah, that that is very likely, very likely, because there are there are nice studies on that. The linking the average happiness level in countries in function of the income inequalities, and if there is high income equality, happiness level is low. High equality, happiness is low. Less equality, so more inequality, the happiness level increases. But then, with a lot of inequality, the happiness level goes really way down, even lower than than with um, with uh, higher quality. What is the reason of that? If there is higher quality, then people uh, lack this kind of, of self-fulfillment, trying to have ambition, to have dreams that you want to realize, and, and that can contribute also to, to feeling this fulfillment and, and giving a meaning to your life. That is when there is too much equality. But when there is too much inequality, you create poverty, and poverty is, of course, very uh, devastating for your happiness level. So, that is something that really needs to be avoided. So the, the challenge is to find, let's say, a fair level of, of inequality. Yeah, And different people have different options, uh, opinions about that, of course, but, but that's, that's the challenge. I, I also explained that 
nicely in my book, which is only unfortunately available. To be provocative, though, I'm not saying communist, but socialist states have overall better happiness levels than purely capitalistic states. That's too, I, I would not call it pro provocative, but it, it's a little bit too, too much black and white so it's mm -hmm. yeah so there is more nuance but you can we can see that the scandinavian countries are on average quite a happy country so the the level of happiness is, is quite high there in the in the world happiness database and one of the explanations is that they have a more fair income distribution than in in several other western countries so that can indeed contribute to the average there are there is more uh, they they have maybe also more the uh, relatedness. As you know, there are three very important psychological needs, autonomy, relatedness, and, and competence. And the Scandinavians also score quite good on that. So they, they, they also, it's not only the income distribution that is more, that's the point I want to make. So Yeah, because I'm always wondering about this research of the Scandinavian countries as the model, but it, does that mean that a huge part of that um, happiness also has to do with uh, security and comfort? Well, if you look at the the pyramid of Pavlov, sorry, Pavlov, Maslov, <laughs> yeah. Pavlov, that's the one with the dog, yeah. uh, uh, Maslov. The, 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 the first needs are, of course, the physical needs. Uh, if you don't have food, if you don't have clothes when it's cold, that, then it's difficult to be happy. And the second layer uh, in, in Maslov's pyramid is uh, security, to feel safe, to know that if you're going out of your house, that, that you're, there is not a danger that somebody will hit you or will rob you. Yeah, that that's uh, the second level in 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 the pyramid. But then, of course, that it's it's the quality of the social relationships, the possibility to develop yourself, to self fulfillment, treating each other with the necessary respect, etc. These are also very important elements. Because this is also a question that I ask in these Corona times. Like we seem to sacrifice a lot of elements for security and comfort or longevity. But when you look back in your life, often it's the, the meaningful thing. Sometimes, you know, when you took a stance that was out of your comfort zone, you know, that was uniquely you. I know the research of Debbie Ware about the top regrets of the people who were about to die. And he said, like, I should have lived a life on my terms instead of what other people expected of me. So I do see another side of a spectrum that also contributes to happiness that especially now I also see like, let's save as much lives as possible. Let's be as secure as possible, which is good on a survival level. But when it comes to meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction, it's definitely not the only vector that determines a, a meaningful, happy and satisfied, satisfied life. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fact that that is part of life. You know that every life will end with uh, with uh, that. And I've seen in this crisis that many have been becoming become obsessed by that and and extremely anxious about it. But if you're obsessed by by the dead, then you forget to live. So you still have to to live uh, a meaningful life. If you are only obsessed by I don't want to die, then you don't, and then you don't live. So, uh, and I think that during during this crisis, that became quite apparent that there was many people becoming obsessed with it, and then, of course, the, the, the circumstances were not there to try to to live uh, a, a good life uh, because uh, loss of autonomy, loss of relatedness, uh, loss of feeling competent. So it was really a difficult time for many people, but still, being in general terms, being obsessed by that is not helping you. Then you forget to live. Do you think we partly have become too accustomed to comfort and convenience that these harsher aspects of life or deeper aspects of life now come to the surface and we find it hard to deal with them or be confronted with them? 
Oh, yeah, but it's it's not really related to the crisis. Uh, there are many people, and some discovered that young, and others discovered that only later, when they are 50s or 60s, that they say, oh, I uh, I forgot to live, I forgot to pay attention to people who really uh, I, I care about and, mm-hmm. and who care about me, but I was busy with my career, I was busy with, with buying things that in the end did not make me happy, and only on a later, uh, in a later stage, they realize mm, that it's not the way to to, to be happy. So the sooner you discover that, the better, <laughs> of course. Well, this is something that I don't understand. I mean, you know, I partly understand it. I think part of our education system is still outdated based on the Prussian system, but we have so much great research, especially also from positive psychology. You know, psychology used to be mostly about what makes people ill. Now we have a lot of research since the 90s, I think with Seligman and other people about, you know, what makes people happy. Why are we not teaching people crucial life skills, how to communicate well, how to find your passion, how to deal with depression, how to find happiness, how to find your national strengths? We have so much time that we could help people develop life skills. And it seems we're still not tackling these deep, meaningful things for people to orient their life. I mean, I'm in the same part. It seems that people have a meaning crisis in their 20s or 30s, and then they finally discover themselves and go deeper. Is this necessary of being older and then only be able to work on them? Or are we missing crucial aspects that we could teach children, adolescents in education? I think, and that's my ambition, one of my ambitions, I have still some ambitions in my life, but one of my ambitions is that in uh, in secondary school, that there would be a a course on, on the signs of happiness so that that our adolescents learn about the signs of happiness and what what makes people happy and what uh, what are the pitfalls, etc. So I, I, we, we are not yet there. There are already some universities worldwide that are teaching already the signs of happiness. And there is already even re- research showing that people who follow that course are becoming more happy. So it means that it, it really can have an impact to better understand. Do they have to choose the choice because it could be a selection bias? <laughs> Yeah, indeed, indeed, it's an optional course, indeed, at most universities where it is uh, taught. So, um, yeah, <laughs> okay. Uh, other question. Next question. <laughs> do, do you know what prevents us from using these tools? Because we have research about the Tavistock Institute, Edward Bernays, and sometimes you know politicians, whether you like to or not, they like to use polarization, fear, you know, because that delivers negative attention and votes. But we have so much behavior in social sciences and psychological sciences that can bring people together, that can help people unite. It frustrates me a bit, like, why are we not using these tools that we have to use it in education, like on TV, etc.? Why is there, according to me, you can correct me, such a focus on the negative, the negative in the news, the negative in the polarization, the negative in the politics campaign? I mean, we have um, Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive, right? You can have nine nine positive reactions on your book and then one negative and that stings, right? Maybe that's a survival bias because just being satisfied is not an evolutionary strategy. But why are we not using these fantastic positive psychology tools? Can you imagine what we have right now with this whole campaign in COVID? If this would have been used like movement sets you free, Meditation sets you free. Eating healthy sets you free. If you meditate, you get an extra cast from the government. Celebrities talking about finding your passion. We could do so much good. But yeah. I see mostly fear being used and polarization. I think it's such yeah. a pity because I see the potential that is there and the money that now in emergency is there that could be used to create healthier, more satisfied, more connected people. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the word freedom, and in fact, it can be interpreted in, in a negative way and in a positive way, freedom. In a negative way, it is like vaccination will set you free. So that means in a, it's a negative because it means uh, you, you will be unchained from that virus. That, that's that's what, what the claim is. In a positive way, freedom is much more related to consciousness. Being free means that you are conscious about yourself, that you are developing yourself, that you are... Uh, creating that you're learning, etc. That is the positive way of freedom. This is the Viktor Frankl kind of stance, like liberty and freedom to determine your attitude towards circumstances. Exactly, exactly. And and that is what because your question was in fact, how is it possible that so many people are still in that kind of vicious circle with 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 the anxiousness and and they're following the 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 herd and and they're following even sometimes dictators that play on anxiety mm-hmm. and 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 the the main reason is because they are not conscious because they are not aware of 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 their their selves and and that's something that you can train but it starts already with knowing that it is possible and i'll i'll try to explain can i have a, a, a short biological explanation yeah sure. it comes from a book the author is christian boiron a french uh, scientist and the title of the book is La Source du Bonheur, The Source of, of Happiness. And so he, he explains that there are three important parts in our brains. One is very well known, the, the, the more reptile brain that is responsible for our instinct uh, to, to fight, flight, or, or freeze. And then there is the, the limbic system, which is where we are conditioned, that is used for our conditioning, positive conditioning sometimes, but also negative conditioning. And, and that's where it's going wrong. Because many people have been negatively conditioned. They repeat mm. almost every day negative things like I'm ugly and the world is bad and all people are bad and my husband is never doing the dishes and or my wife is never doing this and, and I hate this. And typically they, they repeat everyday sentences with often the words never, always and hate. Always, well, now I say myself always, most of the time negative things. And the reptile brain, which is trained to to re- react instinctively on danger from outside, now feels danger coming from inside. All these negative messages, and it reacts then also with fight. People are irritated for nothing; they are aggressive even for nothing. But also flight. People get addicted to things. That that's also kind of instinct reaction. And and there is a third part in our brains, the the prefrontal cortex, the the neocortex, which is exactly responsible for reflection, for nuance, etc. And in many people, they they have seen a kind of a shrinking of the possibilities of their of their neocortex. And it's only fully developed when you're 25. <laughs> well, that indeed, it, it is also part of. Uh, there is a part in our life where you still are developing that neocortex. That's correct. But for instance, if you don't sleep sufficiently, that's bad for your neocortex. If you you are not giving your brain sufficient rest also during daytime, it's bad for your neocortex. But the simple fact that you know that you have a neocortex, that's already a start. As a kind of a joke, I, I tell in my lectures that if you have a, a disagreement with somebody and that other person becomes a little bit irritated, you simply have to tell the other person what's happening to your neocortex. It's not in a good shape, apparently. <laughs> and... and uh, and then you see the result. <laughs> it could be, it can turn out in two ways. Uh, it can could be the end of the disagreement, but it could also lead to even more aggression. So, well, that makes me think about the book by Dostoevsky, Notes of the Underground, where you see, you know, 
existentialism, right? The ability to think about your thinking, which can be a blessing, but also an immense curse. That's sometimes where people say like, I wish I didn't know things. I, I wish I was stupider because I would be happier. Yeah. I don't know whether, yeah, Dostoevsky, he said, uh, according to him, that 80% of the people are stupid <laughs> and only 20%. <laughs> and I, I disagree with that because I think there, everybody has some talent and, and everybody can also develop uh, his brain. Desmond Tutu said, I don't know exactly how he said it in English, but every every human being is, is a masterpiece in development. So if you're, if you're not yet there, you still can that get there and of course we all have different iqs if you see the iq there is an average and there is a distribution but there is more than than iq there is also how how we interact with each other and how we are how we are taking care of our own body and our our mind and many people can learn still a lot about that is it also not about the priorities of things when you like study? Because I feel that we don't discover people there. I have a huge background in personality research and everybody has strengths and can sync with each other. I'm not a big fan of mutual decision making sometimes because some people like to start, some people like to brainstorm, some people like to just tell what the, you know people tell them, some people like to map it out. It depends on what people want. But I see most people, I'm being a bit polarizing, but that's just my style that they choose something, not because it's naturally something that they love to do. I think one of the big factors is like, do you love to work with people? Do you love to work with like systems or processes? They just choose something because it makes money. And then they get graduated and they can't do the job, but then they take the first job and then they develop like experience in it. But I think a lot of dissatisfaction, burnout, procrastination comes from, I'm doing something at my job in life that I'm not naturally good at. And it costs a lot of energy. And they do this for years. It pays the bills. People say, stay at your job. It pays the bills. And they keep on building up repetitions in a direction that is not naturally aligned with what they do. And then 20s, 30s, they do like workshops, find that they want to do. But I, I find people knowing them, know ourselves. It's one of the basic teachings. I don't know. So Socrates, I think. That is such a pity to find people that natural strengths and a national passion. Because when you're in line with your natural way of being more, things go more effortlessly. Yeah, yeah. So many elements play here. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to, to discover their talents because everybody has talents. I remember in, in school, when I was young, we had this kind of special program. All children in the first grade followed the same classes. We all had mathematics and Latin and, and languages, but also how to work with wood and, and how to cook. And I was not so good in cooking and working with wood, but I was good in mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I discovered what I was good in. But I had then friends in my class who were not so good in mathematics, mm -hmm. but were very strong in those other things. So they discovered their skills. And that also really uh, needed to, to more respect for each other because we respected mm -hmm. each other's uh, skills. Having said this, the problem is that, of course, people have different personalities. That's true. And people also have different values in life. Some have more materialistic values. Mm -hmm. Others have more values like my life is successful if I have good relationships with others and they give less attention to materialistic values. But the good news is that there is more and more research showing that our brain is, is plastic. Uh, plastic, not in the sense of plastic, but... Neuroplasticity. Uh, yeah, neuroplasticity. So meaning that we can really become better. We can have people with not such a good personality who can become uh, a better person. We can have people with materialistic values who can then train their mind and, and have then more other values becoming important. That's good news because it means that even during your adolescence or uh, somewhere early in your adult life, 
you were going in the wrong direction, it still can be changed in a in a positive way. I'm I'm pretty convinced of that. But you need you need to become conscious conscious about it. That's the first step. You told me that you still have uh, plenty of ambitions. How important is having goals in life? In general, it is important because it comes back to your first question about Aristotle, Eudaimonia. Eudaimonia also means yeah, giving meaning to your life and having goals in life. It can really be yeah, very, very fruitful for, for your level of happiness. Of course, also there, you have to be careful to not go for that goal in a kind of obsessed way. And, and if you don't reach the goal that, that your life has failed, that's not the way you have to interpret it here. But ideally, being able to have self-fulfillment is often related to first set a goal where what you want, would like to do. Like, for instance, I said, I would like to realize the fact that adolescents get courses on, on, on happiness. I will, I will aim for that and I hope I will achieve that. But I also write music. One of one of one of my goals in life is that I still want to to release uh, songs that I write. <laughs> okay, maybe it never will happen, but working on that goal is also kind of self fulfillment. And yeah, that, which that, kind that, of yeah. the genre is it? Because I would guess I have no idea what kind of music you make. Is it like blues or? Well, it's it's kind of a mix between pop and jazz, something like that, and with texts that try to have a, a, a meaning. Yeah, although yeah. some of my texts are just about love. And I, I love my wife so much, so I write texts about my wife all the time. It's sometimes exaggerated. <laughs> is, is, is that not something also important to do an activity just for the activity itself? I still find it difficult to do something like that because it seems like we're such a result-oriented uh, society. Maybe that's the pro Protestant work ethic, you know, to reward ourselves for the afterlife. But to do an activity pure for the moment or to just dance and just express, I think it's it's very important to have something that you purely do for the activity itself. Yeah, Dancing is a good example. Singing in a choir uh, is a good example. Although when there is then, okay, you, you do all these sessions and and then at a given point in time, you are invited to give a performance. It gives then also a good feeling, of course. But you're right, even without that performance, you're enjoying, you're enjoying the fact that you do that activity frequently. Yeah. By the way, dancing and music, there are, there's a nice study from the WHO that appeared uh, in 2019 showing how arts in general but then especially dancing and music have such a such a positive impact on on our mental well-being so it's a fantastic point that you make it leads me into certain kind of topic it seems that culture is like okay it's fine if society is running but in a crisis it's not necessary we live in this between brackets covid crisis hugs social contact exercise movement culture, expression. For me, that's also fundamental. It's fundamental in society. It's not like, oh yeah, when we need it or, you know, when we have enough finances, we invest in it. No, like I I read a book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. And he says like social context is when you, when you lack it, it's more damaging than, uh, than smoking cigarettes or smoking cigarettes yeah. heavily. That's how important yeah. it is for, for our health. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steinbeck wrote in one of his book, uh, books, he wrote, a set soul is killing you faster than than a germ so if if you're ignoring that then you're giving more damage to the people than than you thought so the point is that this crisis was not a, a crisis of a virus but it was a, a public health crisis and the way it has been approached kind of we we tell our I, I i teach to medicine students and we tell them don't treat a hole in the patient treat a whole patient 
And the same counts, in fact, for our society. Something severe happened to our society, but rather than treating the whole in the society, we should have managed to treat the whole society in, in this and, and respect the whole society and, and all aspects of health and, and, and society in, in this crisis. And that's what many have forgotten. Was this, not, was this the frust because you quit the Corona Committee? Was this one of the frustrating things that made you quit of this? I call it looking at this crisis from the Holy Trinity, which is just the infections, the hospitalizations and the deaths, which is definitely some aspects. But the collateral damage or other aspects of like mental health were like ignored or not being given enough attention. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been I've been focusing on that, emphasizing that point a lot And, and there was already, of course, also studies showing the impact of, of the measures on, on all aspects of, of all other aspects of health as well. And, and that the damage could, the people talk about collateral damage, but that damage could even be bigger than, than the, the effect of some of the measures. So, yes, I was, I was uh, insisting on that, but it was not easy because there were many people Who, who had this kind of tunnel vision. It's like the virus and only the virus. And that was, in my view, the, the, wrong, the wrong attitude. Why do you think this approach was being held? Because normally, I mean, I could think of something novel happening and then you do like a lockdown to figure out what things were like. But then I think a rational approach is to do a cost-benefit analysis and then watch the data, track it, and then see, I mean, whether you like to or not, we have limited resources, so we want to spend it in a way that it has like the biggest impact. Why was this tunnel vision there then? And they, 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 it's the same thing that I don't understand with the vaccine rollout. Like people are being called to get the vaccine. Why is not everybody being called two weeks after the vaccine? And then you fill in like the list of the side effects and negative effects. So you can track what's happening. If it's like minimal, that's fine. But you, you should still get the data and like adapt your policy with the right numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are not more hospital beds being built when it's a problem? Like in a year and a half, you could build a new hospital. You can train certain people who are without a job and then let them take over a certain part of the healthcare process. It's such a narrow, non-pragmatic approach, which I just don't understand. No. Well, coming back to that, that first wave, I have to admit that also I, I, I am a health economist, so mm -hmm. I, I do all the time cost-benefit analysis mm -hmm. on, on many aspects of healthcare. And at that point in time, I, I said, well, I don't have the pretension here to say, hey, what's the cost-benefit of this lockdown? The, the, that virus was so unpredictable, dangerous, that... Yeah, there were only a few countries in the world who, who dared not to have a lockdown. But as soon as we saw the data coming in about uh, increasing poverty, uh, about anxiety, depression, other health issues that were not decently treated, violence within families that increased, etc., etc. But let's talk about the most important one, I think. The number one is lifestyle illnesses and obesity. Exactly, and one thing yeah. is effects of people staying inside, being depressed, eating unhealthy, take away food, yeah. not exercising. It is yeah. going to contribute to the number one cause of that in the world. Yeah, 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 exactly. And when, and when we start sowing, when we start seeing all these aspects, I was convinced that we had to do everything to avoid a second lockdown. That means that. A combination of measures that were sufficiently protecting against the virus, but kept the society active, not closing things, not mm -hmm. closing cultural activities, not closing fitness clubs. Mm -hmm. In many countries, they closed the fitness clubs. That, that, that's crazy because it was possible to have these activities and still having 
sufficient protection against circulation of, of the virus. That was possible. That has already been shown. And unfortunately, somewhere not open because maybe they 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 were not able to to look beyond their own perspective. I don't know. But I try to have a broad perspective, and and luckily several others as well. And and we saw that, yeah. I have my own opinion about it and it's like maybe for another podcast, but when you're going to have measures about, you know, you're going to tell like asymptomatic spread is there, masks is there, lockdown is there. Okay. But then you gather data to see like, does it actually have an effect or not? It seems to be non-disputable right now. There's so much billions of dollars being spent in the vaccine rollout and everything. But if you have measures, these measures also have an impact. Let's test if they have an effect or not. And that's what I don't understand about this crisis and make me suspicious. You correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't the entire approach how this is being treated completely different than in the past with Ebola or any outbreak or SARS? Or was it like the same way? You had measures, they weren't questions, you didn't test the effect, you didn't do a cost-benefit analysis because you know more about this than me. If there were lessons to be learned from previous crises, I, I have the impression that many did not take those lessons and, and did not uh, take them into account. I can only hope that the lessons that we learned about how this crisis was managed, that that can help us when there will be another pandemic in, in the future. I can only hope so. And more data will come out. And you said something important there. It also starts always starts also with, with measuring the impacts of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But the daily incidence of contaminations that that was an infections that was that was measured but the impact on all these other aspects was much less measured and and that that also led to that tunnel vision because what you see every day it, uh, at a given point in time it's it's almost like an hypnosis you are facing every day these data and some people then apparently only see those data and don't see the rest anymore I think yeah. it's, it's this cognitive dissonance sometimes to like hand me. I mean, even I have this, like, am I weird? Am I approaching this wrong? Because I'm constantly being shown the other view. How have you been able to deal with this cognitive dissonance? And you've been one of the outspoken critics or other perspectives about COVID, because this is not just about this. It's about your profession. It's about your authority. It's about university, about trusting numbers. I was not really worried about myself. I, w- I was more engaged in okay how can how can we avoid damage to to our society damage to our population how can we avoid that in the best way and i was pretty much convinced that it was not via uh, another lockdown but of course i at least in in our country i i failed eh? i mean i tried to avoid a second lockdown but it came anyway so now i after a couple of months i thought yeah okay it didn't work the only thing I can do now is maybe via my book try to there was damage and, and try to help people how to yeah restore life again and how to increase well-being again. So now I, I look at it in a positive way in the sense, okay, what happened happened. I cannot change it anymore, but we can look to, at the future and 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 try to yeah to have a positive impact uh, on as much as possible people. During writing this book and publishing a book and COVID happening, did you did it change something about your Perception of happiness? My change in perception of happiness happened about five years ago. I did all my life studies in what we call uh, public health, uh, so about health and, and then the economics of, of, of health. And only seven years ago, I started with research on happiness because when when you're doing studies on health, it's also about quality of life. And quality of life is closely related to well-being, of course. And mm. so 
uh, it was kind of a step by step. I don't know exactly how it happened, but step by step, I was doing more and more research on happiness. And doing the research on happiness, realized I, I realized that yes, I had to do some changes in my life, and and that made me indeed even more happy than I was already before because. I was already a quite happy person, but I've learned some things, and 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 since then I I can even uh, yeah say that I I am more happy than before. Yeah. What was the first thing that you changed? Peace of mind. <laughs> yeah, I was a happy person, but I didn't have a, a lot of peace of mind. I was always busy and uh, always active, and and so that peace of mind that that's something that yeah that helps a lot. Was that changing your identity and the, the view of yourself? Because I'm still a recovering workaholic and I'm, I want to make an impact. I want to be busy, but sometimes I work on my busyness and not my business. And in the end, working on your business, your personality also impacts your business and how you show up. So, Yeah, I have to admit, I'm also still a workaholic. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but, but, but that's because I, I think that I have important things to do so it's kind of, i'm i'm really privileged there eh? i'm a i'm a professor I have a, I have a good income i have a fantastic wife i have four great children already two grandchildren i have good social relationships etc uh, etc et i can uh, have a lot of self-fulfillment but there is a saying being privileged comes with a duty comes with um with responsibility so i can't just sit there and enjoy my life i i i want to do something for others and and yeah that that results in a lot of work. <laughs> so I, I work too much, but I enjoy it, of course. Do you think when someone is a bad place, the first thing they should do is cut out something negative instead of trying to create something good? Or should they just try to find something positive? Many studies and books on happiness, they they still they confirm that you have to avoid negative energy. So if there are people around you that give a lot of negative energy and it's not possible to change them smoothly in a in a short term then it's better not having yourself influenced by that by that negative energy but i prefer to turn it more into positive affirmations so we can get a lot from from positive positive affirmations to think more positively yourself that helps definitely yeah I believe in the power of, because I think thinking is talking to yourself and I think different parts of yourself talk to yourself. And when you ask yourself an honest question in an environment that you have peace and tranquility and you would answer yourself in your head the question, what should I start doing? What should I stop doing? What should I let, let go of or choose to let go of? I think a lot of people know the answers. I think they know when they have an honest, deep conversation with themselves to maybe that deeper part of themselves, not higher, deeper part of themselves. I think that gut feeling, that intuition is there. Yeah, I think you're right. But as, as, as we said already, the first step is consciousness, talking to yourself, uh, the reflection, <laughs> reflection. Yeah. And unfortunately, many people do not even question this. They they just live like that ball in the pinball uh, game and and they are not yet having that self-reflection. And that's the first step, I think, that is needed. And it's oh. it's not that difficult to, to have that as a first step. It's just being aware that this is possible, that you can self-reflect. What I found difficult about that period is that, you know, once you start taking, because sometimes I think there's a war on personal responsibility. You know, I see also the pharma industry just tackling the symptoms and not addressing the course of the lifestyle. I think it would be great when you go to a doctor and the doctor says like, so what did you think in your life made you more prone to, to come to me or become ill? 
How's how's your job going? How are you feeling right now? What happened before this disease? Like these questions, yeah, <laughs> more yeah. dialectic about what do you think what contributed to it? But like I know some doctors in Belgium, they have like five or ten minutes, and they have to like you know so many patients during an hour, so there's not a lot of room for self reflection. Oftentimes, education is about giving answers and not asking questions. So this way to reflect, it's not being taught with people. Shut up, sit down. I tell you what to do because I tell you to. So it's also no wonder that people are not often reflecting about it because they're often not being trained in having a dialogue with themselves. Exactly, exactly. So it's important to invite each other to reflect, of course. So in, indeed, and that is that is missing a lot. Yeah. Again, maybe that's also not enough in education. Uh, so in in in, uh, in secondary schools, maybe it's there is also too much focus on performance and and doing the tests and then passing the tests and, and not enough on self-reflection. There is, I always look hopefully uh, to, to what I see happening. There are more and more schools already who who apply techniques like the, the interactive circle, for instance. So that mm. means that once or twice a day, the pupils go sitting in a circle and reflect about some things of what happened that day and what it what it made feel them and what it made them feel about the other ones, etc. These are simple techniques that can indeed train that that self-reflection. Yeah, indeed. From all the things in your book, with someone who's like not at a satisfied place, unfulfilling place, uh, unhappy place, what would be one of the first things in the circle of influence that they could or or that on under their control that they could work on? that would have already like a big impact on enhancing their happiness? Well, if you're not happy, then of course, you know, I can become more happy if I if I change something in my life. Then the next question is of what, what would you change? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is uh, like I'm going to do an activity where I can play a role in the neighborhood. I can be in touch with and, and uh, with lone, people who are lonely or old and, and I invite them to couple of times a week to have a walk, for instance. That's then more doing something for others. But others others say, no, I I start with some creative activity. I start uh, learning to play the ukulele, for instance. I buy a cheap one. And that can already be a trigger to, as a first step, to become more happy. Sometimes it's simple things. Or I I decide to have more time spending in in nature and and have a walk in in nature or in, in the forest. It's often about creating things. It's often about sharing. So that means doing something for others. And it's also often about learning things. So creating, sharing, learning. These are three elements that come back a lot in the in kind of the new activities that you try to, to undertake in order to yeah, change something in your life. Because I had some research about making other people happy makes you happier than the other person or something that I, that yeah. I read about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There is this... Yeah. In Dutch, we say, you can vermenigvuldigen door te delen. So you can multiply yeah, happiness by sharing it. Sharing it. Yeah, but, but in Dutch, it's even a, a, a more, better even. Uh, yeah, it's the only thing that you can share and you don't lose it. Exactly. It doesn't yeah, diminish. Yeah. yeah, a giving hand is never empty is also sometimes uh, said. So doing something for others is, is really uh, useful. Although you have to be careful not just to surrender to demands of others of course i mean others should not take profit of you of course that that would then your your altruistic attitude goes too far but but doing something for others mostly 
makes yourself also more happy. But as I said, it can also be doing something creative, learning a new language. It can already be a first step because that also requires concentration. You find yourself again useful. So you're already starting pulling some ropes that can can make you more happy. Yeah, yeah most people are not acting. It's according to me, the raw truth, that most people are not looking for a, a vitamin, they're looking for a painkiller. And often they hit rock bottom, they have to hit rock bottom to change their life. I don't know what your reason, I mean, you were happy, you want to optimize it, which I understand. But I know a lot of people, including me, I was at a dark hole. I was like, I can't continue. I'm not super close, but I'm closer to that or giving up on life. And then I started asking the question, what would make my life meaningful? What makes me feel alive? But I had to hit that low point to have enough of it to be sick of it yeah, to yeah, say like yeah. now I have the momentum so much pressure that I'm sick of it screw it I'm going to try something else because I have nothing to lose anymore so it's more from I have nothing to lose anymore than I have so much to gain yeah but of course in the, in such a case there is first a lot of suffering of course yeah. and only then the way up starts I think it is possible even by with avoiding that episode of suffering if if we if we see it earlier if we the earlier we can intervene, so to say, the less suffering there will be. So uh, it's again showing the importance of school and and what people, what what children have are learning in in school about about happiness and about uh, mental well being. So there is still a lot of work to do in, in in schools. We have in Belgium now a concept. It's called warm schools, and the warm schools indeed try to fulfill that. Try to achieve that the children can develop themselves, can feel happy. Uh, are are not under pressure and and they see that that these children are performing very well. So it's not like some people think oh it, it's either this or that. It's either focusing on well being or focusing on performance. But that's not true. The more you focus on well being, the better they also will perform. So that's the way to go. Yeah, because I read some stuff about the sleep medication and antidepressants in Belgium. I think it's one out of ten or whatever people are like antidepressants. So what is your stance? Because I know Paul Verhaga also talks about it, about one hand blaming it all on the individual, but on the other hand, blaming it all on the society and not taking personal responsibility. Where is a bit the middle ground between this with honoring the personal responsibility, but also taking a look at the, you know, Krishnamurti said it's not a sign of good health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. <laughs> well, first of all, you're right. The, the, in Belgium, it's 1.2 million people who take antidepressants. Wow. That's, that's a lot. We are 11 in total. Uh, so it's even more than 10%. Well, we are 11.5 million in total. So let's say a little bit more than 10% mm -hmm. takes antidepressants. And then we also see that in our research, about 30% of the citizens are not happy on that ladder. They, they score five or less on that ladder. So that's that's really a lot. So the next question is, what do you do about it? Well, first of all, indeed, like Paul Vrage writes, not, not medicalizing it. So not saying, ah, you have a problem, so we need to cure you with a, a drug. The, the, the solution is what we call universal prevention. Universal prevention meaning that you focus on the mental well-being of people from the start, from, from their childhood, and then you avoid that they will become unhappy. You avoid that they will become depressed. You will not, not avoid it in 100%. There will always be uh, cases, but you can, for a large part, avoid it. And, and of course, when somebody is unhappy, what should also be avoided there is to, to, to blame them. Some people, we have this expression, blame the victim. So if somebody's not really feeling well, you're not helping that person by telling them it's your fault. Uh, so uh, that's also 
something that we have to be careful about in, in our education and in at work and well, that's and, a good question i think like how can you stimulate someone to make a choice to become more happy without blaming them how can you do this in an encouraging way yeah well and it comes back to the title of my book not by telling them you have to you have to become happy <laughs> you have to pursue your happiness no it's it's by stimulating the self reflection and kindly inviting or exploring yeah is there anything in your life that you would, that you would like to change there are several possibilities uh, like we said something creative something more sharing for with with others etc and in a kind of a non-judgment way try to give advice on maybe you could try this or you could try that that could be interesting to discover something new in your life and because i'm also like, not not good at i'm going to admit i'm not good at it and maybe men have more difficulty with it but we have like how you're doing and we give the standard answer like i'm doing fine but sometimes you see people suffering or they gained weight or they're more depressed and we, we don't ask like how you're doing or we ask it in a way that we just want a quick answer and that's it so we also yeah. don't provide a lot of space or connections to to see what's going on in people their lives we understand them and gently maybe encourage them to to change things because sometimes i see people suffering or they're not at a bad place but we don't often have a hard to hard conversation about what's going on in a person's life no but of course if you ask somebody how are you and they say i'm fine i don't think it's a good idea to say i don't believe you yeah uh, <laughs> come on tell me tell me you're not feeling fine admit it yeah. that's not helping but when when you ask not so general questions but more a question about and do you do uh, do you have still time for yourself because nowadays uh, we are all all so active and 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 so do you, do do you have time for for yourself do, you, do what, can you still do your, do your hobbies oh no no i don't i don't do anything anymore uh i i started again playing the piano and i'm so much enjoying it oh that's maybe a good idea i I'll, I'll, I'll try to yeah and and so by that kind of conversation you can maybe help people to do some to change something in their lives i have to admit i find it easier to write it in a book i i just write it in a book and then read the book and you you feel more happy <laughs> i'll just carry all your books in my backpack when i see someone <laughs> like you should read this no, you should read this but but as i said there are many books about happiness uh, that are only focusing on how can i be happy uh, but i think it's more how can we be happy so how it's, you need others to 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 be happy so that's more what i try to explain we were talking about that courses on happiness and for instance what i said there okay you made a remark about selection bias but learning about happiness can help you indeed to become more happy because it helps you to pull the right ropes and yeah Depends yeah, and, it's, and, it, and I think the earlier you started, you know, because I worked in healthcare for nine years as a healthcare coordinator, and there's like so little money being spent in prevention. Even most of the money in healthcare is spent on the, maybe the last three years or last year of people. So that's where most money is being spent. But the earlier you started, the better. Like I was hopeless, depressed, you know, I was really at a low place. Until I got a book about happiness, until I got books about positive psychology, oh, you know, I can deal better with circumstances, which I think is sometimes even more important, your mindset, your approach, than actually always yep. getting the result that you want. While other people are yep. like, I'm going to buy the Porsche, I'm going to buy the house. And then someone gave me like, you know, the the book about happiness to improve happiness. Like, wow, that seems yeah. like worthy of my time. That seems interesting. It fascinates me that not more people are picking up a book 
or checking out stuff that could increase their satisfaction, their relationships or happiness, because I think that's one of the best things to spend time on. But yeah, I think some yeah. people don't believe that it will have any effect or I don't know if you have an explanation, why not more people see a book about this, like, whoa, that will be awesome. I'm definitely going to read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that indeed some at some point you need a trigger and that can be a book that can be reading or hearing something can be a podcast. <laughs> so I remember, yeah, what was for me also a trigger was a Buddhistic expression, namely, if there is a problem, uh, you can't do anything about it. Why worry? And if there is a problem and uh, you can do it, do something about it, then why worry? Then you simply do something about it. That helped me also a lot because I was indeed longer time ago easily worried uh, about things and frustrated. And now I'm not frustrated because either I cannot do anything about it, then why should you be frustrated? Or uh, I can do something about it and then then you don't have to be frustrated. So that helps also. Yeah. For people who want to know more about you, your great work, want to pick up your book, it's in Dutch right now, but it will inevitably be there in other languages in the future. Where can they check out more about all the research works and books you are uh, writing? Yeah, well... the. the this book is, is published by Orgerof and Lamberichts. It's a publisher based in Ghent uh, in, in, uh, in Belgium. Yeah, there is some information about my previous books and uh, soon there is going to be a website, evenanemans.eu. <laughs> and on that website, there you can find then more information about, uh, about what I'm writing and, and, and doing. But that, that one is not, not yet online, so it will be soon online. In these crazy changing uncertain times of COVID and everything that's going on, what are some things that you think we could invest in or ask questions about as a society to increase our overall happiness? Then we go for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the future. <laughs> yeah, no, but definitely increasing happiness level in the country, it requires two things. Uh, remember that Kennedy once upon a time said, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But I think it's both. We have to ask what our country can do for you, namely making income differences smaller, investing more in health, physical health, mental health, health promotion, uh, preventive health. That is something that our country can do for us. Our communities can also work on, on nicer neighborhoods, etc. That that's also still the policymakers. But then that's the part what can the country can do for us. But then there is a, the part what can do, what can that what can we do for our country? What can we do for others? And then it can be simple things. I read somewhere, you're, you're never too important to be nice to people. So just mm -hmm. being nice to people have, helps already. And it's also a mindset. When I meet people and I go walking, I, I say hi to everyone. And some, some people look at me like, well, this guy's crazy or so. But it doesn't cost anything to be friendly to others, caring for others, trying to do something for others, more that altruistic attitude. And then, of course, caring for ourselves. Uh, so like we said, uh, you train your brain by meditation, by mindfulness, or you have to find a little bit what fits you best because when you train your body, uh, some feel better with swimming, others with biking, others with jogging or walking. I think it's a little bit the same for training your brain. You have to find what fits you, what suits you best. Is it meditation? Is it mindfulness? Is it, is it a walk in the forest? You have to find it a little bit for yourself, but please train your brain. It's really crucial. It's a happiness buffet and I want to extend my gratitude, which is also a huge thing to boost your happiness and uh, for being so nice to be on my podcast. Thanks for all the wisdom and I wish you all the best with all the ambitions that you have and the search pursuit of happiness. Okay. Thanks a lot, Philip. It was really great to be with you. 
If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.